It opens up with the amazing proclamation that there is no condemnation in Christ. It continued last week with the encouragement that there is only hope in Christ. And it concludes this morning with the proclamation that there is no separation from Christ. So you can imagine why we call it a triumph. Because from beginning when it says there's no condemnation in Christ to the end when it says there's no separation from Christ. And all in between it's about the work and love of Christ transforming us, freeing us, sacrificing for us, and loving us. What else can it be but a triumph? And so that's why we've called it for three weeks running now the triumph of the gospel. Now, if you were here when Jesus opened us up in chapter 8, you recall that Jesus said that chapter 8 was really just uh, repeating the themes that were found in Romans chapter 5, where Paul drops this bombshell of good news that because of what Christ has done, we are now at peace with God. We are in Christ, the second and the last Adam. And because of that... Everything changes. Everything changes. Even though, and we saw this in, in, in chapter five, uh, chapter six, and chapter seven, even though we might still struggle with sin, God is relentlessly bringing about his purposes for his people in Christ. He will do it. So it makes sense as we get here to the very last section of Romans chapter eight. Paul begins us with asking the question, so, so what do we make? How do we make sense of all this? What sense do we make of it? And then he goes into a barrage of question after question in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. That's kind of a good enough repeat to get you back refreshed in the text. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the last nine verses of this passage for us. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 888. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 31. We'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 39. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Paul writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, verse 31 contains probably one of the richest, uh, one of the most meaningful, one of the weightiest, certainly one of the most radical statements in all of the Bible. It's just four words. You probably know what it is if you've been paying attention to the service so far. God is for us. (laughs) Just how radical a concept that is. 
If that doesn't blow your mind, you've just been hearing it too much. You're desensitized to the radicalness that God is actually for you. Given all that we've learned in this book, how in the world could God be for us? Friends, you let that one truth sink into your soul, it changes everything. Ever wonder why some people are so easily offended, they get so insecure, and they're so defensive? It's because they feel that they have to protect themselves, and nobody's got their back. You ever wonder why some people are always demanding their rights? It's because they feel that if they don't, who will? They don't have anyone in their corner. You ever wonder why some people are just gripped by fears? just absolutely controlled by them because nothing seems certain. No one seems in control, least of all them, and they feel like there's no one there to take care of them. It's all on them. You ever wonder why when you read the Gospels, Jesus never displayed any of those traits? He was never easily offended. He never was defensive. He never demanded his rights. He wasn't gripped by fear. Well, that's because Jesus knew that he always had his father's pleasure. That's kind of a New King James way of saying he knew that God was for him. In all of his life, he knew that in his bones. Do you know? I mean, do you know in your bones that God is for you? If not, listen carefully this morning. Do you have someone or something in your life that can dispel insecurities and, and the, the need to be defensive or easily offended or demanding your rights? Do you have something that can get rid of those things? If not, listen carefully this morning. Because Jesus Christ is the answer to both of the questions that I just asked. And we'll see that in our text. In verse 31 to 34, what we're going to see is the application of the work of Christ. And then in verses 35 to 39, what we're going to see is the application of the love of Christ. Now, how Paul is going to get us there, and, and, and by there I mean, so you know in your bones that God is for you, is by showing how Christ uniquely deals with the two evils that we all in this room will face. The evil of sin in verses 31 to 34 and the evil of suffering in verses 35 through 39. And so here's what we're going to walk away with. I'm kind of telling you what the message is in 30 seconds here, so I hope you don't fall asleep for the rest, but I just want to lay it out so you know it very clearly. Here's what we're going to walk away with today. By God's grace, you will know that God is for us because we will see how the work of Christ conquers the evil of sin and the love of Christ overcomes the, the evil of suffering. And for any one of you who receives that and gets that into your bones, this will give you the freedom from fear and strength, new strength for the fight against both of these things. So I know that's pretty dense, so, so let me put a kind of a diagram version of it on the screen behind me. This is the argument that I think Paul is making. The work of Christ conquers sin. The love of Christ overcomes suffering. Both the work of Christ and the love of Christ is proof positive 
God is for us. And since God is for you, you're free from fear. This gives you new strength for the fight against both these things in your life, both sin and suffering. Now, I always get accused of like, going past the slides so quick, so I'm just going to let that sit there for a while. You guys should just take pictures of it. It'll last longer. All right, we're moving on. Let's look at them now, one at a time. Freedom from fear and new strength through the fight against sin. Now, notice in verse 31 to 34, we're, we're brought back into the scene of the courtroom that was very present in Romans chapter 2. This particularly, we know this because of the abundance of legal language. You notice that in verse 33? Who will bring a charge? God justifies. Who will condemn? Those are all legal terms that we, we saw early on in Romans chapter 2 as God put all of humanity, or God through Paul, put all of humanity on trial before the Lord. But in Romans chapter 2, no one was found innocent, right? But here we are in Romans chapter 8, after talking about the work of Christ, now no one can be found guilty. And Paul asks, who is against us? Who can bring any charge? Who can condemn us? So the first thing we have to ask is who is the who that Paul is referring to here, right? Who is he talking about? And as, as I've kind of studied this, there's really only three possible options that are out there. Number one, option number one is that it's other people, right? Other people who've seen your sin, other people you've sinned against, other people you've sinned with. They're the ones that are bringing the condemnation. They're the ones bringing the charge. They're the ones who are against you on that great day of judgment before the Lord. That's option one. But according to Romans 3.13, right? if you remember that, write that down. Romans 3.13 basically told us that every single one of us is an absolutely unreliable witness in the court of law. Remember, some of what Paul said is that our throats are like an open grave. Our tongues are only used to deceive. So in any court of law, an uncredible witness can't be used. So it probably isn't other people who could condemn us. So option one is other people. That doesn't work. Option number two, probably what you were thinking of, especially because Paul doesn't say what, right? He's saying who, so that's a personal thing. Probably maybe Satan. That would make sense. After all, his name literally means the adversary, the accuser. So it makes sense that, that it's Satan then. He knows just as much as anyone else of our sin and what we're guilty of. But if you remember our, our study of the book of Revelation last year, because of the work of Christ, Satan himself has been silenced. Remember Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 12.10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, you remember in our study of the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 12 is a pivot point where, where, where John is encapsulating all of redemptive history and really all of human history into one short chapter. And so what he's talking about here is now salvation and the, and the kingdom and the power have come. What's he referring to? Well, in the Gospels, you don't have to look very far. What is Jesus saying? His, his first opening line in the Gospel of Mark. Well, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. What does John say at the very end? Of, what is Jesus' last words on the cross? John 19.30. It's finished. What's he referring to? 
He's referring to this. He has secured salvation, and he has thrown the enemy down. Now, in the Old Testament, you see vividly how Satan used to do this all the time. You go right in the courtroom of God. You see this in the book of Job. You see this in Zechariah. And, and Satan would literally say, have you seen this guy? Do you know what he's like? Well, because of the work of Christ, he's done. He is not bringing accusations. He's been silenced. So option number one is other people doesn't work because none of us are credible witnesses. Option number two, it would be the accuser, the adversary of our souls, but that doesn't work because the work of Christ has silenced him, so there's only one other option. And that's probably the most terrifying and persuasive of all is that it's us. I don't need anyone else to stand and accuse me. You don't need anyone there to accuse you because you will accuse yourself, your own sin condemns you. And here's the most frightening thing about that option. All the charges are true. Like, like other people might lie. Satan would certainly lie. None of that needs to happen because all of our own sins are true. I mean, none of, nobody's going to be claiming fake news or misinformation. It's all real. All the charges that would be leveled that I would do, that I would bring against me because of my own sins, what I have done, are true. We are rebels. We are victimizers. We are oppressors. We are glory thieves. Friends, that's why we feel condemned, because we are condemned. I jokingly talk in, in, in some counseling classes I teach I said, you know, I try to bring a Christian perspective to all these things, and I say, you know why one of the universal paranoias is that we feel like we're always being watched, don't you? Because we are, right? I mean, it's true. It's a little bit creepy, or it could bring you comfort. You're always being watched. Now, I say that just kind of jokingly, but kind of not. There's a reason people who are struggling with their, their guilt and their sin and paranoia feel like they're being watched because we are always ever before his eyes. But hold up there. Hold up. Do you remember last week, right? That's some of the challenge of, of preaching verse by verse. We can disconnect. What did last week say? Verse 30, if you are in Christ, and by the way, that's the key to all of this, being in Christ. If you are in Christ, then God has predestined you, he has called you, he has justified you, and he's glorified you. And we pointed out, those are all past tense. It is such a done deal. God wrote it down in the past. You're done, it's done. It's a done deal. If you are in Christ, then what is true of Christ is true of you. That's what it means to be in Christ. If Christ goes left, you go left. If he goes right, you go right. If he is justified, you're justified. Now, why don't you hold your fingers in Romans. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, that's in the Old Testament. It's one of the major prophets. Isaiah chapter 50, it's in that section. It's kind of like if you're looking at your Bible, it's right there. It's in that section where they're talking about the suffering servant or the servant of the Lord. And, and, and this is an allusion to the one that is to come, the Messiah. And listen to what the servant of the Lord who's going to bring God's redemption says. We know this to be Jesus. We are in him. Isaiah 50, starting in verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? 
Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Paul is saying, no one, not other people, not Satan, not even you can bring anything against you. No charges, no condemnation is possible in Christ. You know how and you know why that is, right? Verse 32, because Paul says, because God did not even, God did not even spare his son, but he gave him up for us all. Now that verb there, gave him up, it, it, it shows God's initiative in the crucifixion. Every time the gospel narratives talk about Jesus being delivered over, it is using this verb. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, speaking of God's servant who will deliver Israel, three times it's used of him as well. Paul uses this verb of Jesus in the epistles as well. God gave him up. So what I mean to say by that is, in answer to the question, who delivered up Jesus to die... It's not Judas for money. It's not Pilate out of fear. It's not the Jews out of envy. It's not even your sins, but the Father out of love. The Father gave him up. And this is like theology 101, right? You learn this when you go to any football game ever. Is that guy still there, John 3.16 guy? For God so loved the world that what? That he gave. God The work of Christ teaches us God is for us. Friends, if commitment is seen by the cost sacrificed to keep that commitment, then could God possibly show us that he was any more committed to his people? And just in case you might think, well, well, maybe at that moment when I felt all that remorse and, and, and I repented of my sins, God's forgiveness was given to me, but it was just one time. And since then, I've royally screwed up. And I'm still screwing up. God would not be committed to me. God would no longer be for me. Paul writes verse 34, right? Especially the second half of verse 34. Paul says, look, he didn't just die for our justification. More than that, or you could say even better, he's been raised up and now stands at the right hand of the Father interceding. And we looked at this verse from um, Hebrews 7, 25 last week. He's interceding guaranteeing that the verdict that will come in for you is always going to be innocent. Making sure that the freedom he died to accomplish gets applied to you. Friends, there's nothing to fear whatsoever. Your sin has been cleansed. You are innocent before God. Regardless of what's happening in your life, because of the amazing work of Christ, you cannot take yourself out of God's grace any more than you did something to put yourself in his grace. By definition, grace is unmerited favor and uh, unmerited favor or blessing. Now, here's where people get a little bit nervous, and even with Paul. Because they say, wait, 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 wait. Um, here's the problem. Look, you can't preach that kind of gospel message because if you remove the fear of consequences, then people will do whatever they want. You have to tell people they got to live a certain way, they got to follow a certain set of rules, or they'll do whatever they want. But here's the thing, friends. Fear can only change behavior, but grace changes the heart. When you truly see your sin, 
Like, like you really see it. Like, you're not making mis- excuses anymore. You're not blame shifting. You're not rationalizing. You go, yeah, that was me. When you're there and then you see a savior, you will change, not because of fear, but because of grace. Now, to illustrate that, I want to take you to another passage in Scripture. Go with me to John's Gospel. John chapter 8. Keep your finger in Romans. John chapter 8. And let me read you this this short interaction, starting in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, to say nothing of the fact that the scribes and Pharisees didn't bother bringing the man that she committed adultery with. So you know this is kind of a setup, because where was the man? Now, but honestly, if you understand how unfair that culture was, men were allowed to have uh, sexual relations with other women that were not their wives. So the gospel changed our culture dramatically, and that's one of the reasons why the man didn't get brought over. So they could be legitimate, or they were just trying to set him up, but here's what's going on. Verse 5, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You can bet that that woman went home, and she did not jump back into a life of sin. She was changed. But you might be thinking, but, but, but that's because Jesus told her, you go and sin no more. I don't, I don't think so. But it's because Jesus gave her strength to fight sin because of the grace she received. Fear doesn't help you fight sin. Reveling in grace because of Jesus' work does. See, here's the thing. This woman knew. She knew in her bones she was guilty. She knew she was condemned. Unfairly, though it might be obviously, it was a setup. She might have been entrapped, but she did it. She knew she was condemned. She knew what the consequence should be. What happens, though? But she received grace. Friends, here's what I'm getting at. Only sinners, only sinners can revel in a Savior because only sinners know they need one. Right? So the question you have to ask yourself is, are you a sinner? Do you know in your bones that you should be condemned? That's the first step of the gospel, man. No blame shifting, no justifying. We all have reasons, and we can all put the blame someplace else, but that isn't going to do us a hill of good. Hill of beans? I don't know. You know what I'm saying. Until I know I'm a sinner, I won't revel in a Savior. 
And until you get to that point, here's the thing. Here's the dangerous thing about not living with persecution. I I hope it doesn't make you bothered that your pastor prays for persecution in our culture. Because here's why. When it's easy to come to church and do the kind of Christian thing, that's, that's people who don't know they're a sinner can do that. And so you might see it. They'll fit church in when they can. They'll make Christianity conform to their lives as best they can. When it's inconvenient, they won't adjust to it or, or shape or make the stands that they should. But when you're a sinner and you know you need a Savior, nothing stops you from conforming your life to Christianity. There's a big difference. Uh, let me get back to the text because... Um, Paul shifts just as quickly, almost on cue in verse 35. He switches from the work of Christ to the love of Christ in verse 35. Not because the two are separate realities, but because they're entirely not. Christ's work justifies us. It deals with the real objective problem of sin, right? But here's the thing. God's dealings with us are not just a legal transaction as if there's no affection and care, right? As if the Son of God went to the cross and said, all right, finally, I did it. I took care of the ultimate problem of sin. Now you guys figure the rest out. In this hard, broken world and all the sufferings, I'm out of here. That is not what God had done. So Paul shifts to encourage us that in this life, though our troubles might be unique and our sufferings, that God is for us. God took care of the ultimate problem of sin, but he also helps us overcome the problem of suffering. See that in verse 35 and following. Now, Paul, to be clear, he's still dealing with fear, right? It's just a different kind of fear, a fear of the unknown, a fear of whatever struggles and trials and difficulties might come our way, fear of an unknown future or forces that could upset us, our lives. That's really what verses 35 through 39 are all about. And what Paul makes really clear is that when these struggles come, these sufferings come, we will never be separated from the love of Christ. I don't know if you noticed, but in the book of Romans, Paul often talks about the gospel in the midst of suffering. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but partly because suffering is a universal touchstone. What I mean by that is that somebody said, all of us will experience the joys of life differently, but suffering lays us out low in the same way. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Everyone suffers, right? Becoming a Christian does not make you exempt from life's hardships, but particularly the reason I think Paul's talking about it here is because suffering can make us feel forgotten. Suffering can make us feel shelved or unloved by God and separated from Him. And we fear that our sufferings are the proof of this reality, that God has forgotten about us, that that God has shelved us, that that God is no longer, his favor is not on us, and our sufferings is proof of that. But think about this from the person who's writing this. By the time Paul wrote Romans, John the Baptist obviously had been beheaded. beheaded. Jesus had been crucified. Peter, John, and um, other apostles had been arrested. Persecutions were breaking out throughout the church. Even Paul, before his conversion to Christ in Acts chapter 8, he was dragging men and women off to prison, right? Acts chapter 12 tells us that John's brother James had been killed. And did you notice that Paul experienced every single one of these difficulties that he writes about here in Romans 8, 35 and 39? He suffered through every one of them with one exception, execution by the sword, which eventually was how he himself lost his life. 
But would we ever say Paul felt separated from the love of Christ? No. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, the love of Christ controls me. He says, I am compelled by the love of Christ. Paul, who suffered all these sufferings, would never say, I'm separated from the love of Christ at all. And yet he faced every single one of these. Sufferings will come into our lives. It's not the evidence that Christ's love is gone. Rather, it's the evidence that we live in a profoundly broken world and every one of us experiences it. But as we learned last week, in Christ, we all have the conceptual framework to actually make sense of why suffering can be redemptive. Now, if you've read Romans 8, you're probably confused by this verse, right? That comes like almost seemingly out of left field. Paul's quoting Psalm 44, 22. And in this psalm, the people of God were living righteously, right? They were observing Torah. They were being faithful. And yet struggles came to their lives. Trials overwhelmed them. Tears filled their eyes. And you can almost, if you read Psalm 44, I encourage you to do that later, you can almost get a sense they're like saying, what in the world's going on? Well, what did we do? Now, in the psalm, it's, it's actually, there's not much historical information about it. What we do know is that it was a time when the Jews, the people of God, were living righteously before the Lord, but they had lost a particular battle. And so men literally died. Men of Israel literally died. And so that's partly why it, the, the verse says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. They actually lost the battle, and they have no idea why. And so why does Paul quote that? What's the point he's making? I think it's just this. Life is hard, even for the redeemed, sometimes especially so, because we kind of tend to think, hey, God, I'm loving you. I'm doing what I'm supposed to, so in return, make my life work out. We kind of think that, and, and in a broken world, that's not how it always works, Right? It's not kind of like God's an Italian mob boss where we tithe every week as our protection money and he protects us from the things of this world. That's not what's going on. Sometimes even the godly endure suffering. And what Paul is saying, even in the midst of that suffering, doesn't mean you're separated from the love of Christ. It's just that this world is broken and you will experience it. And when you do, don't believe for a second that you're not loved. And we talked about some of the purposes of sufferings. If you weren't here last week, give that sermon a listen. If I were to ask you all about your sufferings, I'm sure I'm not discounting the, the difficulty of sufferings, but you would say that they were oftentimes a catalyst for growth. You would not have chosen to grow that way, but because of Christ giving you the grace, you were able to grow. Friends, this is the reality. Suffering humanizes us. Think about that. Suffering humanizes us. That's why I said last week in one of the services that if I have struggles, I don't like to talk to young people, right? And, and particularly because younger people have not quite suffered as much as older saints who've been through the wear and tear of life. When I'm struggling, I want to talk to the older saints. Do you know why? Because I don't have to say much. They just get it. They're softened. They understand. Suffering humanizes us. One of our greatest needs, friends, this is the paradox of Christianity, one of our greatest needs is to have a Savior that's not the product of our needs. 
Let me say that again. One of our greatest needs is to have a Savior that is not the product of our needs. I, I love this quote. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's by a British-American poet by the name of W.H. Auden. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with him or even read poetry. But being British, he was born and raised in the Anglican church, walked away from his faith in his early 20s, became a world-famous poet. But later in life, he came back to Christ. And I love what he has to say here about this, about Christ. I believe in Jesus, he says, because he fulfills none of my dreams. Well, because he's in every respect the opposite of what he would could of what of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Jesus doesn't work in our lives often the way we would want him to. And maybe precisely because of this, he works in our lives exactly the way we need him to. And that oftentimes comes through the crucible of suffering. Two verses later in Psalm 44, the psalmist cries out, and representative of the people of God. Why do you hide your face, O Lord? Well, Romans 8, 31 to 39 reminds us that God has not hidden his face when his people suffer, not at all. God's face is seen in the crucified Jesus Christ. Friends, our sufferings are not unknown to him. We do not endure alone. Who is betrayed and Christ is not betrayed? Who is falsely accused, and Jesus does not know that injustice? Who is rejected or scorned and abandoned or abused or ignored or disdained or spit upon or reviled or disrespected, unloved, and forgotten? And he doesn't know it. Shortly after World War II, uh, a playwright, actually he was a, uh, a playwright named Gunther Rutenborn, wrote an unusual play that they produced and performed in Berlin right after the war. In the first act, a bunch of Germans were asking themselves if they knew about the Holocaust. So a mother getting rations for her child, a steel magnet busy employing uh, Germans in his steel factories, a stormtrooper who was busy following orders. They all denied the knowledge of the Holocaust. So interesting, the actors walk up and down through the theater talking to the audience. Did you know? Do you know? Did you know about the Holocaust? Well, when Act 2 rolls around, all the actors are playing these characters, they all agree and they all admit they all did know about the Holocaust. But none of them were to blame. It couldn't have been them. The blame had to go higher up. And so as the act unveils, the, higher, the blame goes higher up, and the higher-ups make the same kind of excuses. Well, we were just following orders. We were doing what we needed to do. So all the actors realize that none of them could have been blamed for the Holocaust. So who was to be blamed for the Holocaust? There was only one person left. They blamed God for the Holocaust. And so by the end of the play, they decide, after finding God guilty of the Holocaust, that his punishment should be that he would have to live life as a Jew and that he would have to lose his own son, and that he himself would be deprived of all dignity and falsely accused and executed for no other reason than to satisfy the twisted desires of others. See, Gunther Rutenborn was also a Lutheran pastor. And he said, look, as horrible as the Holocaust is, and as horrible as our sufferings are, there is a tragedy far worse the price of redemption. 
in our sufferings, we are no more abandoned by the love of Christ than Christ was abandoned by the love of the Father when he went to the cross. No, friends, even when we suffer, God is for us. Even in our sufferings, God is for us because he entered into our sufferings, not simply just to experience it, but to one day end it. That's why Paul says, look, you will never be separated from him. Because of the work of Christ and the love of Christ, you can know that God is for you. So what do we do with this? How do we walk away from this text? Well, let me give you in the last couple of minutes here just three brief ways to apply this text. Number one, allow this truth to lead you to worship, man. (laughs) Allow this to lead you to worship, particularly verse 32, right? The particularly verse 32, when Paul says, God gave up his sons, did not spare him, gave him up for us all. So wouldn't he with, with him with all, give us all things that we need? Think of the costliness of our redemption. The costliness to stand here and to come in his presence through worship and to raise your hands and to cry out to him in prayer. The cost was his son, right? Think of the effectiveness of that redemption. Do you know it says he gave him up for us all? What that means is, friend, anyone here, if you are willing to see yourself as the adulterer, and if you're willing to see yourself that you are a sinner, that you need a Savior, then that redemption was for you too. It's not just to the Jews. It's not just to like put together religious people. It's for all of us. It's especially for those of us who know we're sinners and not put together. And then finally, the consequence of our redemption. All that in verse 32. And what I mean by the consequence is, look, if God's going to give you his son, arguing from the greater to the lesser, what makes you think he's not going to give you everything else you need? Think about that. Let these truths lead you to worship. Number two, allow these truths to lift you from despair. Like the, the, the praise team led us through the reading of Psalm 56. I mean, it was all just horrible, right, up until verse 9. And then the people of God say, but then I remember God is for us. And then the whole psalm pivots on that. Friends, allow the truth of this, that God is for you. And if you ever doubt why, you just have to look at the work of Christ. You just have to look at the love of Christ. He's for you. Allow that to change the despair in your life to strength, to freedom. And third and finally, related to those two, allow these truths to embolden your faith to embolden your faith. God is for you. I think there's a couple responses to that. Some people might say, I don't need God. Maybe the, the religious mentality would be, oh, that's, that's condescending, I don't need God. I don't think that's going to be our problem. If anything, I think our problem is, I can't really believe that. Right? That's probably what you're thinking. Can God really be for you? Do you believe he is for you? This morning in elder prayer, I thought, could, any, could anything hurt a parent's heart more than for them to know that their child cannot believe that you as their father are for them? How much more does God's heart grieve when we don't believe he is for us? Have these truths emboldened in your faith that God is for you. 
Not because you lived righteously this week. Come on, that's not it. But because his heart is a heart that loves and he's chosen to put that love upon you. And by the way, he even, even though he's grieved that we don't think that we can't believe that he's for us, he also pities us because part of the reason we can't believe that he's for us is because sin has so jacked us up. Yes, he's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. But the power of sin is so deep running that even we who are redeemed struggle to believe the truths of the gospel we say we believe. Let these truths embolden you, man. God is for you, not because of you, but because of the work and love of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths of the gospel. Even as I'm uh, thundering them out now, I'm preaching it to myself. Lord, help us to stop disbelieving you. Help us to believe the gospel. <laughs> you are for us. And it's not because of us. Now you love us. But it's because of the love that you have this says everything about you. It says something about us, but it says everything about you. A loving and kind and gracious and holy and just and amazing and sovereign God. This is the triumph of the gospel. Our prayer, my prayer as the pastor of this church would be that we would be able to come to grips with what that means in our bones, that God is for us. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.